The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I am Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Jennifer Wilkins. She has been a leader in sustainable community-based food systems throughout her four decades long career, beginning as a clinical dietitian and later as a university researcher and professor at both Cornell and Syracuse universities. While on the faculty in the Division of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell, Dr. Wilkins developed and directed New York State's Farm to School Outreach Program and the New York State Farmers Market Nutrition Program. She also developed the first ever regional food guide for the Northeastern United States, which promotes and connects healthy eating to local food systems and sustainability. Dr. Wilkins wrote a monthly column for the Albany Times Union titled The Food Citizen, which focused on nutrition, food policy, and food systems. And she coined the term civic dietetics to describe the integration of food system awareness into professional dietetics practice. In all of her work, Dr. Wilkins has helped us move from being mere consumers of food to being thoughtful food citizens. Dr. Wilkins received a BS in environmental health and nutrition from Western Washington University, an MS in nutrition education from Teachers College at Columbia University, and a PhD in nutrition and consumer economics from Washington State University. She was one of eight individuals selected from a national pool of applicants for the Kellogg Foundation's Food and Society Policy Fellowship, which is where our paths first crossed, and we have been in touch ever since. Most recently, she received a Lifetime Achievement Award for Excellence from the Society of Nutrition Education and Behavior. She is based in Ithaca, New York, but her work has international influence. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for that gracious introduction, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be with you. You've done outstanding work, but I think your name is most synonymous with the value and reverence for local food. And we are going to talk about that today, as well as a topic that you and I have been talking about for years, and that is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. But before we dive into that, I'm curious to know, did your experience in clinical dietetics shape or influence your future work in food systems? Well, I think it most definitely did. But also my interest in food systems influenced my work in the clinical setting. I was fortunate enough to work at a very prominent teaching hospital and a trauma center in Seattle, Washington, and had a director of the nutrition department who was very open to exploring ideas and issues beyond individual dietetic care. And I was able to write some articles for the hospital newsletter that informed staff and physicians and nurses about some food systems issues. Uh, For example, I wrote an article about the health of seafood, so looking at omega-3 fatty acids, but also then a follow-up article 
that looked at the state of the fisheries. So I felt very good about bringing those kinds of ideas to the clinical setting. And then I became friends with the director of the hospital and talked with her about the importance and the impacts of procurement, even in a hospital setting that favors or highlights and supports local production. So she was able to work some things into the menu that were supportive of local food systems. But in terms of the other way around, just seeing the needs of people in the clinical setting really made me realize that the food system as a whole needs to be more aligned with public health and good nutrition security. So you were really way ahead of the curve. You were doing this work before most of the rest of the dietitians I know anyway, were really thinking about food systems or the power of local food and protecting or linking our environment to the quality of our food. I think that when we talk about food systems, there might be some confusion about what that really is. What do you mean by food system? Well, there are many food systems that we interact with on a daily basis. The dominant food system is global in scale and involves a procurement and a distribution system that is very complex. But the food system entails everything from the research that goes into agriculture and crop production, the seeds, who owns the seeds, who controls the seeds, the planting of the seeds, the cultivation of the soil, the harvesting, the distribution of commodities and crops destined for various types of processing, and then the distribution of those foods that result from processing through a marketing system. So grocery chains, small scale food stores, mom and pop shops, and then the eater or the customer or the consumer who interacts with those marketplaces to procure their food for their household, the cooking, the either composting of the food waste or the recycling of the packages, all of that is part of the food system. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the seeds and the farming and agriculture piece because our topic today, which is the Food and Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, formerly known as Food Stamps, is the largest chunk of our national farm bill. And I wonder how many people realize that SNAP or food assistance is connected to the farm bill. And how would we think that that was the case? Because we don't talk about it in terms of a food bill, but that's really what it is. Yes, very much. It is a food bill. It's a food systems bill. It's a nutrition bill. It's a farm bill for sure. And, you know, it, it wasn't always the case that the nutrition title was such a dominant portion of the total farm bill spending. And it used to be that the commodity title was a larger part of the nutrition title. But the nutrition title over time and the SNAP program in particular, which dominates the nutrition title, has grown and grown to a point that it's nearly three quarters of the farm bill. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I think that the elephant in the room when we talk about food assistance is poverty. You know, what leads people to need food assistance? 
And I rarely hear that discussed, but I don't think we're working far enough upstream. Yes, you know, it is so amazing to me that we have a minimum wage in this country that if someone works full time for a year, they would still qualify for getting SNAP benefits. And I find that disturbing and just unethical that that could be the situation in a country like ours. Absolutely. And yet the rhetoric perhaps around food stamps or SNAP, any kind of food assistance, there's this underlying theme that there's dishonesty, there's laziness. You hear a lot of our representatives call for work requirements or stronger work requirements. But we know that a large percentage of people receiving food assistance either can't work because they're kids or they're disabled or they're elderly. There are many reasons why people can't enter the workforce. And the majority of those who can are working and getting the benefits because of those low wages. Yes, it's true. And another thing that's important to keep in mind is that people are working and they're still not making enough to live. They still need the benefit. And there needs to be a bit of fairness that is brought into the system and in including our food and nutrition assistance programs. And when you think about poverty, if we expand the reasons behind it, in addition to inadequate wages, there's also the issue of not having affordable housing, not having affordable health care, all of the reasons why or how people may become in need of food assistance, I think, need to be brought to the table. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. And the other thing is that there have been plenty of studies to look at this question of fraud and are people cheating in the program. Study after study points to the fact that there is very low fraud in this program. Exactly. All right. I want to take a look at who benefits from SNAP. Certainly, individuals who are at the poverty or near the poverty line, they benefit from SNAP. But I read a fascinating article that was a report from the Union of Concerned Scientists, and it was titled, How Big Food Corporations Take Advantage of SNAP. And for people who aren't thinking beyond the individual benefit, I was alarmed to realize that there are a couple of corporations, a few, who consistently pay their employees such low wages that they are dependent on SNAP. It would be Walmart, McDonald's, and Tyson. Those are the top three. And when we think about this circular system of who's really benefiting, so you've got a workforce that's working at such low wages, but the corporate founders are making so much money really on the backs of taxpayers. Like we help subsidize the income of these corporations. You could call it corporate welfare too. You definitely could. And you mentioned Walmart. So Walmart, apparently, according to one assessment, captures 18%, nearly 20% of the SNAP benefits. So not only are they underpaying their employees, then their employees probably turn around and spend the SNAP benefits in Walmart, their place of employment, as well as their friends who may or may not be on SNAP. But 
you know, that's a pretty astounding situation, if you will. You talked about it being circular, and it absolutely is. And when you consider that 10% of the federal spending for SNAP, or $12 billion, is spent on foods that are unhealthy or ultra-processed, even more if you consider all foods, but I was talking more about sugar-sweetened beverages and other sugary drinks, then that's a really high multi-billion dollar tax subsidy to the soda and sweet beverage industry. And it's pretty astonishing, really, when you think about that. We're already, as taxpayers, paying for all of the farm bill. But then on top of that, we are subsidizing the soda and sweetened beverage industry because more than 10% is spent on soda and sweetened beverages. And in terms of the nutrition profession, public health nutritionists, public health professionals in general, you know, I, I wonder when and where is the rage going to come because of this situation? It certainly seems that there's more than enough fodder for outrage among nutritionists and food justice advocates. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why I started out our conversation today with your experience in clinical dietetics is because that experience for me showed me what poor nutrition looks like. So what I got to see in the clinical setting were the ravages of poverty and the ravages of poor diets on health outcomes. So heart disease, cancers, all kinds of problems that might have been prevented if only people had had access to healthier foods. So I totally agree with you with regard to outrage and connecting the dots between what people eat, what they have access to, and then the health costs at the end of the day, because taxpayers are going to be paying for that too. Exactly. It's as if we're paying multiple times for the system that we have. We're supporting the farm bill. We're supporting nutrition assistance programs. We're supporting the healthcare costs. We're supporting the food industry that benefits from this system the way it is. And it's working the way it's intended. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. All right, Jennifer, let me take one break because we're halfway through. And I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Dr. Jennifer Wilkins. She has been a national and international leader in sustainable community-based food systems. Jennifer, I want to talk more about the potential that SNAP could have in improving people's health and helping to drive a more sustainable agriculture. Do you have thoughts about that? Sure. And before I get into that, I think it is important in all of this that we are, I think this is probably true for you as well, in no way are we blaming SNAP recipients for the fact that SNAP benefits are used on ultra-processed food, sugar-sweetened beverages. Those are the options many times that are most prevalent and most shelf-stable, which is important for all of us, but especially people that have limited resources and don't want to waste food. So ultra-processed foods are available to them. They may not have very decent grocery stores in their neighborhoods. So the options are limited. So when we talk about the potential for SNAP, if it were designed 
as other programs. So other food nutrition assistance programs, for example, I'll just use the example of the WIC program, which people might know as Women, Infants, and Children's Program. And it is a a nutrition assistance program for those populations. And they are given vouchers for a package of specific foods. And they cannot purchase other foods aside from this package of nutritious, culturally relevant foods. And they can't go outside that. So there is precedence for having a nutrition standard for nutrition assistance programs. The SNAP program doesn't have that. You can purchase any food. You can't purchase non-food items or alcohol or cigarettes, but beyond that, there are no restrictions. Right. And I'm really glad you brought up the blame and the victimization of people, of poor people. And I have seen studies, and perhaps you've seen them as well, where SNAP recipients, their food purchases really don't vary very much from someone who's not receiving SNAP. But to your point, there are limitations in access for individuals who are receiving SNAP. So individuals, for example, who are living in poverty, and it could be urban or rural environments that don't have access to full service supermarkets, for example. Maybe they are forced to use some sort of convenience or dollar store because that's what's there. So I definitely appreciate your point about blame and victimization. I think that many times low-income communities are exploited by these ultra-processed food manufacturers. You know, they move in, they collect that SNAP dollar, but the individual at the end of the day is left not well-nourished. Yes, and other aspects of the program that sort of hint at an opening here for a nutrition standard for the SNAP program is that the rules say that 30% of one's own resources, 30% of a household's net monthly income is meant to be spent on food. So the benefit that a household gets, the total benefit is calculated minus that 30% of their remaining net monthly income to get at the final benefit that they receive. So there's always been an assumption that they will spend some of their own money on food. right? So they're completely free to buy whatever they want with that. And of course, they're completely free to buy whatever they want with the SNAP benefit. But there is an opening, I think, there when you consider that for there to be a nutrition standard put on SNAP. And, you know, we, we've been having this debate for, I mean, I wrote about it in, you mentioned the Food Citizen column, I wrote about it in 2009. This has been going on 20 years before that. And we now have decades when we've been having this debate and the situation in terms of public health and nutrition-related diseases, obesity, diet-related cancers, diabetes, and heart disease, that it's time to try something else. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought this up. I want to mention an argument that I receive sometimes from people, well-meaning colleagues of ours who will respond to any suggestion of shaping SNAP benefits around the dietary guidelines as well. You know, you don't want to take away people's dignity and you don't want to remove people's choice. And when I hear those lines, I think to myself, hmm, who might own those messages? 
And I think the people who own those messages are really the ones who are benefiting from the sale of ultra-processed foods. I think that if we're going to talk about dignity and choice, then let's give people a fair living wage, because that's what dignity looks like. And let's give them real choice, not the choice between Coke or Pepsi, the choice between going to a farmer's market and getting real fresh food versus being forced to shop at the closest place that has shelves lined with ultra processed food. Well, I agree. And I also think that there have been some innovative experiments and programs that have been put in place to augment the SNAP benefit and to direct spending at places such as farmers markets. Farmers markets now will accept EBT payments for using SNAP benefits. There are also incentive programs that are becoming increasingly popular. So there are programs that incentivize the purchase of fresh fruits and vegetables. And one of them is called Double Up Bucks, where if you spend a certain amount of money on uh, fruits and vegetables at the checkout, that's valued at twice the amount of the benefit. So these programs are also indications that there's more that we can do. Why not just make healthy food the foods that you can buy with the SNAP benefit? And, you know, I, I also think that we haven't talked at all about the billions of dollars that are used by the big food companies for marketing and for lobbying. If the food industry wanted to save some money and instead of not getting the benefit and the, the income from SNAP, they could pull back on their advertising of ultra processed foods and of lobbying and campaign donations. I think the whole system is geared toward undermining the health of our most vulnerable people. Exactly. And I wanted to pull up an article that was published by Civil Eats, and this was back in 2017. And it had to do with whether or not Congress should cut soda and candy from SNAP. But Big Sugar is pushing back. So they reported that members of Congress could be caught between their constituents and industry interests when it comes to SNAP. A recent study by the nonpartisan nonprofit group Voice of the People found that more than 70% of Americans favor banning the use of food stamps to buy soda and candy. However, both the sugar and soda industries are large campaign donors to the House Agriculture Committee, which approves the SNAP program's operations. So reflecting back on our Food and Society Policy Fellowship, one of the lessons that was clear to me then was A, policy is everything, but also we've got to have some sort of campaign finance reform because even that, which you think might be a distant topic, it's really related to everything. Absolutely. I mean, campaign finance reform would change so many things. Just allowing big food industry and, and other industries and gun manufacturers to have such influence on our policy. Is that democracy? Is that really how you would define it? It's not how I define it. Exactly. Well, you had mentioned to me in a previous conversation, and I loved the way you framed this. You said, you know, really SNAP is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for so much from health to agriculture. We just have a few minutes left, but I want to give you the opportunity to share your thoughts about what SNAP could be. 
Right. So we have this program that is a taxpayer finance program that is $120 billion. It's two-thirds of the total food nutrition assistance spending by the USDA. And it impacts the lives of 41.2 million people in the United States that participate on a monthly basis. So it is an investment. We can think of it as an investment in health, an investment in food security, but it also is an investment in the food system. The question I think we really need to ask honestly is what food system is it supporting? Is it supporting, in part, it is supporting the proliferation of new food products, many of which are ultra-processed foods. It's supporting the proliferation, availability, and low cost of sugar-sweetened beverages. And what is the food system that we want it to support if we were to be able to shift that investment? And I would say that shifting as the incentive programs that I mentioned do and as the SNAP benefit use at farmer's markets does, shifting toward more local, more community-based food systems that build community, that keep land in mostly organic production, because those are the farms that market locally and directly to consumers most often, and local markets. So it's building community at a time when I think this country needs it more than any other time, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And when food stamps were originally developed, our food system looked completely different. We did not have the proliferation of ultra-processed foods, which not only harm our personal health, but if you look at the basic ingredients in those foods, like the corn and the soy, those are monocultures, they're heavily sprayed. We could design a support network for people who need it in gap times, hopefully, not consistently, but we could design something that matched our U.S. dietary guidelines, that supported a more ecologically friendly agriculture, and that helped mitigate climate change. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is one of the questions. To what extent and how could the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program be this multi-pronged program that addressed all these needs that are so great in this country, alleviate hunger and food insecurity, support local and organic production, and mitigate climate change? Clearly, so much of our subsidies go into the primary ingredients in most ultra-processed food, corn, soybeans, wheat, and so much of our land. When you think about the acreage that is in these crops, it's enormous. So that alone, if some of that land was freed up to be more diversified, to grow more fruits and vegetables, maybe that would help make those foods more accessible and more affordable. Exactly. Well, we are out of time. So we will have to revisit this topic again, specifically looking at dietary guidelines and agriculture and climate as the farm bill progresses. 
But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jennifer Wilkins. She has been a leader in sustainable community-based food systems throughout her four decades-long career. In all of her work, Dr. Wilkins has helped us move from being mere consumers of food to being thoughtful food citizens. Thank you so much for this important conversation today, Jennifer. Thank you very much, Melinda. It's great to be here.